0: to create a listener account, and in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening, so you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat, and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Degena Dor, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we're really honored to have Dr. Dakmar Schwerk on the show to talk about her new book, a Timely Message from the Cave, the Mahamudra and Intellectual Agenda of Geshe, Drakpa, Gendin Renchen, the 69th Jakempo of Bhutan, published by the Department of Indian and Tibetan Studies at the University of Hamburg in 2020. Um, here's a little note. Uh, since we are dealing with primarily the geographical region of Bhutan in this book, Um, This episode will also be cross-listed and featured on the channels of new books in Buddhist studies, of course, but also new books in South Asian studies. So, Dr. Schwerk, welcome to the show.
2: Yes, hi, Diana and everybody out there. Thank you so much for the invitation to this wonderful podcast series, and I'm really excited to talk today to you about my new book.
1: Great, the pleasure is ours. Um, So let's maybe begin the interview with some self-indulter questions. So um, a little bit about yourself. Tell us how you became interested in the regions of Tibet, Bhutan, and Buddhist studies. Yes,
2: in brief, I'm a scholar in the field of Tibetan, Bhutanese, and Indian Buddhism, and I'm originally from Germany. So how it all started was when I decided to go back to school in my 20s, after several years of an administrative career. Because of that, um, I think I chose my study subjects already from the beginning very consciously and, yes, followed my personal interest in, broadly speaking, Eastern philosophies and Tibetan Buddhism more specifically. I should maybe also mention that at the University of Hamburg at that time, I studied still within the framework of the old Magister system, that was a time before there was a complete shift to the BA and MA system in Germany as well. And um, the Magister was a little bit simplified, the BA and MA together, but it was much less pre-structured. So because of that, it really provided um, us um, a lot of freedom to choose courses from the early beginnings according to their own interest and build up much earlier certain individual research profile, you could say but also consequently required, of course, a lot um, more responsibility and really good time management from a student. So I chose to take tibetology as my main subject, and then classical Indology and political science as my minors. Yeah. (laughs) And um, yeah, so the system was really a little bit different. And then I proceeded with a PhD in tibetology. And it felt that with the choice, I was really, one could say, part of two different academic worlds, namely, yeah, the Buddhist studies, Indology and Tibetology, textual studies world on the one hand, and then the completely different and much bigger academic scene of social sciences. This really helped me to reflect from early onwards about the purpose of disciplines and interdisciplinarity and also what directions I could or should maybe take as a scholar. And um, this influence is also seen in my research today, for example, by working on the highly complex and fascinating relationship between religion and politics in the Tibetan cultural area, social differentiation, and secularity. In fact, I think drawing from different disciplines in research on Bhutan is not only valuable for a historical perspective, but also when analyzing contemporary events such as Bhutan's successful COVID-19 response. Then Bhutan, so how did I become more interested specifically in Bhutanese and Himalayan Buddhism? There are a lot of reasons. Um, I think that's for uh, a lot of us researchers um, the case. However, I would say two stand out as main influences on my path. First, through just being and studying and living in the Indian Himalayas, obviously peoples of the Indian Himalayas, namely the Darjeeling region and Sikkim, for some longer time during my magister studies, that really influenced my individual research path. I'm actually very grateful, in a way, that I did not go to uh, Tibet, but to the Indian Himalayas at that point, because this really opened my eyes about the complexity and diversity of the Tibetan cultural area in a historical context, but also today still. And yeah, what this possibly could and should mean then to study something called Tibetan Buddhism and become a scholar in this field. And um, secondly, more concretely, I I, I got into research about Bhutanese um, Buddhism through being a student of Professor Dorji Wangchuk at the University of Hamburg, um, who then also became my MA and PhD supervisor. It was actually when I started to think about a possible MA topic that, yes, it wasn't as easy as I had thought to choose something that was interesting but also manageable at that stage, right? Um, so so it was then that he drew my attention to this really fascinating 20th century Bhutanese Buddhist master, the 69th Chief Abbot Rinchen, from the Bhutanese branch of the Dupakaku School. And um, J. Rinchen was indeed not very well known outside of Bhutan until then, except as the author of Jobba popular life stories and his important history of Bhutanese Buddhism as, yeah, one could say the standard work for Western scholars working on Bhutanese Buddhism and, um, yeah, the uh, religious and political history. Professor Dorji Wangchuk then proposed that I should work on a synopsis of Cheyenne Madhyamaka interpretation, By the way, as it's customary in Bhutan, I refer often very automatically to the different chief abbots of um, Bhutan with this abbreviated honorific title of J and then their name. So I just wanted to mention that in the beginning. So J. Genrinchen, J. Rinchen, and so forth. Okay, back to my MA and this Madhyamaka work. It turned out to be pretty complex in the end, but also raised my curiosity for this fascinating person and encouraged me to do more about Buddhism and Bhutan in general in the future. So I guess that's more or less how it all started, and yes, these are some of the influences on my past as a scholar, but also person.
1: Yeah, thank you for sharing that with us. It's it's fascinating. I didn't know that you were also trained in political science. um, So I guess you became interested in Jai Gendun you know, very early on, even in your MA and um, throughout your training. Uh, But how did you become interested in this specific topic in the book? How did you come to write um, a timely message from the cave? Was it something that grew out from your doctoral dissertation?
2: Yes, um, yeah, uh, uh, that's correct. And this book is based on my dissertation research. Um, and while I have been here at the University of British Columbia, I worked on this publication. Yeah, um, so so originally after the May, um, yeah, as I just said, um, due to my already existing interest in Jake and Nguyen Shan, uh, it was pretty clear to me that I wanted to continue my work about him during the PhD. Um, And I was personally very interested in working on Mahamudra. So I felt that this Mahamudra commentary um, by J.K. N.W.N. would cover quite a lot of his identity also as a scholar, practitioner, author, and teacher. So I felt um, I will also learn a lot about his life. Um, Because, yeah, of course, Mahamudra is a paramount doctrine of his school, the Kagyu school. One advantage, I think, um, was also for me that I I thought, yes, I know already his specific writing style and thinking a bit um, through, um, yeah, the foundation of his philosophical thinking of the Madhyamaka interpretation that I had worked on during my MA. On top, Professor Dojivangcho had also mentioned that there was indeed a longer Tibetan biography about him out there in Bhutan somewhere. So I wanted to locate this work and also address Jigen Winshan's important role in Bhutanese Buddhism in the 20th century more in detail. Yeah, at least I would say also two aspects made me realize that this work is urgently needed. First, um, there, there's not much when it comes to Western academic scholarship on doctrines and practices in the Bhutanese Drukpa Kagyu School. Yeah, as I feel, until recently, the focus was more on the religious political history of Bhutan in general, with excellent research, by the way. And second, most of the existing academic scholarship about the Kagyu school, in particular when it comes to Buddhist doctrine and practices, has covered more the earlier Tibetan branch of um, the school. Um, So big figures such as the fourth Chem Pema Kapu, or the second Nukchen, peljo, but not so much of the Bhutanese, much later branch we are dealing here with. And yeah, we will talk more about that later, but that split from the Tibetan branch only in the 17th century. Um, and And maybe a last thought I would like to share about the process itself. Writing this, my first book, (laughs) and what really helped me was that I I actually had worked already in two different international and interdisciplinary settings um, since the PhD. So the University of Leipzig, and of course, now here at the University of British Columbia. And what I mean by that is I was able to really engage in exchange with scholars from various fields and disciplines about my book in this process of publishing it. And by seeing and discussing my work through those new and often other disciplinary lenses, I could much better carve out what I really wanted to say and what was still unclear and so forth. Because of that, I also consciously created those intersections for more transdisciplinary discussion, hopefully broadening then also the possible readership of my book.
1: So yes, I think that's how and why I wrote this book. Yeah, thank you for answering that. Uh, like you said, I'm really excited about these two interventions that you're bringing in the book. By the way, congratulations on the publication of your first book. I'm really excited for you.
2: <laughs> thank you so much. Yes, that's a real, a really big thing <laughs> for me.
1: Yeah, it's it's definitely a big thing. Yes. Uh, and like you said, right, this book really breaks ground in, in two previously understudied subjects in Buddhist studies in the West. Uh, One is Jigendun Rinchen's extensive Mahamudra interpretation, so the doctrine side of Bhutanese Buddhism. Um, And second, the reception history of the Mahamudra controversy in the Bhutanese branch of the Jukpa Kagyu school. This is also um, something that's... um, rarely been covered. we will go into these two points in more detail in the later questions of this podcast. But in general, first of all, just so so we can ground our conversation. uh, What are some of the insights you can share with us on Jigendun Runchin's unique perspectives on the Mahamudra tradition?
2: Yes, that's a very good question. And also, um, yeah, how to concisely (laughs) describe that (laughs) in in some minutes. Uh, Maybe it's good to think um, of two aspects that go together here uh, when we talk about uniqueness. So um, uniqueness, maybe more in the sense of content. So what are some major traits of his Mahamudra interpretation and argumentation? More in the doctrinal sense. And then uniqueness in style. So uh, what is very specific for him? So how does he go over things when defending Mahamudra? So his specific style also really stood out for me uh, when I also began to see his Mahamudra work, The Timely Messenger, in the broader context of other doctrinal writings from his collected works, but also his life and his autobiographical writings and then the biography, of course. So to start with, maybe very generally, Jiggyan and interpretation of Mahamudra shows a strong preference for meditative practices and non-conceptual methods of insight into, of course, the nature of the mind on the Mahamudra path. So while this work is highly scholastic and tackles all the nitty-gritty doctrinal and philosophical criticisms regarding the Mahamudra controversy, Very systematically, the importance of meditation, extensive retreats, and real experience shines through all the time in his argumentations. One example of this um, is maybe that he repeatedly points out the limitations of writing in general, and our conceptual mind in particular, um, to solve certain contradictions in the Mahamudra controversy, and then proposes also how to deal with this otherwise. And here he is very direct and outspoken, basically saying, hey, this now really turns into some sort of sophistry. <laughs> but then, on the other hand, that doesn't mean that he's taking Sakya Pandita's or other scholars' points of criticism lightly or brushes them off, as has also happened so often in other polemic texts from scholars of the Kakyu schools, especially during the heyday of the Mahamudra debate in the 15th and 16th century. So, so while this is clearly a polemical text, it is also a question-and-answer text, um, in first, with some kind of pedagogical mission for students to memorize the crucial points of Mahmuda to really understand them. And the work really shows Jigenin Rinchan's sincerity and respect in dealing with the criticism of the scholars of other traditions. So another aspect is that, of course, Jigenin Winshan wants to defend Mahmuda as an authentic Buddhist doctrine that is not contradictory to any of the orthodox Buddhist systems of Paramitayana or Manchayana, Vajrayana. And Mahamudra, of course, has to be on top of the hierarchy of all those teachings. But his argumentations then are mostly not mm, sort of exclusive, but he tries to systematically harmonize the Buddhist teachings belonging to either the second or third turning of the wheel of the Dharma, by emphasizing them as equally definite in their respective contexts. And so one strategy of doing that is that he considers the soteriological and hermeneutical context of the disciples, for example, the different capabilities and perceptions, to solve then seemingly contradictory statements regarding Mahamuja. So, this line of argumentation, of course, is very typical for Rimeo scholars and their spiritual successors. And when we look at his biography, J.K. nguyen was a disciple of important second-generation students of Yumi Pam Gyatso in Tibet and was very influenced by Mipam's thinking and style. In addition, although he remains broadly in the exegetical framework of the Kagyu school, um, as it is to be expected. Um, his Mahamuda interpretation also shows the influence of the eminent 15th century Sakya Master Shakya Shokten, and that's really interesting. So, in sum, his Mahmuda tradition, so um, that you asked about, in the sense of his Mahmuda interpretation, of course, is to be perceived as inseparable from his broader intellectual agenda that was so much influenced by his unique non-sectarian education and teachers in Bhutan and Tibet, and the, this innovative vision that he developed then for his own school. This means how he wanted to reinvent and position the Bhutanese Duprakaku school in the 20th century doctrinally. And of course, Mahamuda is indeed here the centerpiece or yeah, uh, the cornerstone to do that.
1: Yeah. Thank you for elucidating that. Uh, it's really, really fascinating. And it's a it's a nice way that you brought everything together uh, that we'll be talking about in, in more detail later. And uh, let's talk about uh, the sources and, and of texts a little bit. And so to analyze Jigantin Rinchen's interpretations of the Mahamudra doctrine and meditation system, um, you focus mostly um, on his commentary book, the, the Duki Puna, the, Timely Messenger, a response to the questions about the doctrine of Mahatmudra, titled The Pointed Spear of a Siddha. This is the title of the text, um, uh, which you have also translated and provided um, in the book. Um, you point out that to your surprise, uh, this work was, um, quote, was not an autonomous work at all, but the latest commentary in a series of other commentaries stretching back to the 18th century on a root text written by yet another Bhutanese master, Jashaka Renshin, unquote. Um, so I'm really fascinated by this intertextuality of this fascinating group of texts. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about how do they relate to each other and what does it tell us about the intellectual lineage of this Bhutanese branch of the Drukpa Kagyu school?
2: Yes, I'm happy to talk more about that because this was indeed a very big surprise Then. Quite a challenge, um, but in the end, I have to say a great blessing in disguise. So in detail, we can say we have three stages in the genesis of Jishaka Rinchen's 18th century root verses, the pointed spear of the Siddha, and then the commentaries. First, there are those initial oral discourses and the debate between Bhutanese and Tibetan masters from Akagyu schools about Mahamuda, where J. is, so to speak, the person leading the discussion with uh, and asking the questions and giving short answers. And this then resulted later in a text production of J. shakarinchan's root verses, the Drupai Dongnan. And then second, we have the commentaries of those masters present in the debate who had promised to answer and react towards J. Shakarinshan's root text and, yeah, basically his vision of Mahamudra. And those commentaries were found as far as the Uli Monastery in Tibet or Tsangsa Monastery in Eastern Tibet. And they had gained, therefore, trans relevance and popularity. And it was really interesting to, to map that out and find out about that. All those three commentaries that I was able to locate in the 18th century, partially or fully, comprise also J. Convention's wood verses. So that's important. That's always embedded. So, um, as it's also said in those texts, Jeshaka Winshan had cast out the spear of a siddha, as he is, of course, considered someone who is in command of the spiritual attainments of a yogin, and requested the other masters to respond to his questions and answers, hence the title of the work, The Pointed Spear of a Siddha. What is also remarkable is... um, that J. and wood root verses have been transmitted pretty faithfully in those commentaries, considering if we consider the shift from first oral to written, and then also the wider geographic distribution and time span we are talking about here, which suggests that those seven topics the root text deals with were well known and also valued. Therefore, those text versions provided me with important insights into this transregional text production in Bhutan in Tibet and gave me the opportunity to look a little closer at major characteristics also of Bhutanese and Tibetan manuscript and block print production in that time and also the linguistic diversity of those authors. Um, about all these aspects, I talk a little bit more also in Chapter 4 of my book in the introduction to the annotated translation and critical edition and then we are at the third stage. When we arrive in the 20th century, we have the latest commentary by Ken Rinshan that also comprises the complete root text by J. Shakirintzen. So this is where I had originally, of course, started my work, as you pointed out. What was also intriguing in the process of finding and working on this text was the broader political context. This all took place during the mutual easing of religious and political tension, and newly beginning diplomatic relations between the Gandhampurang government and Bhutan. And only because of that, Jishakirinchen and the other Bhutanese masters could hold this debate with, so to speak, also Tibetan Drukpa Kagyu masters present. I'm also addressing this background um, of, um, of those really interesting different 18th century commentators and Buddhist masters a little closer at the end of the first chapter. So those texts make it possible to, to look at the intellectual lineage or history of Bhutanese Kagyu school between the 18th and 20th century on the basis of their detailed interpretation of Mahamudra, I would say. One of the takeaways from my work on this um, text was that in fact crucial shifts on the doctrinal level take place after the Bhutanese branch of the Kagyu school split from the Tibetan branch in the 17th century. And, um, that also those texts represent a conscious and clear demarcation towards the Tibetan Juuppaharyu school explicitly talked about in those texts, despite the shared lineage until then, so that was pretty fascinating i found so 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 maybe I will just shortly mention one concrete example of this, beginning with Ji Rinchen and continuing to the twentieth century with Jkend Rinchen. um. The eminent Sakya master Shakya Shoktan that I had mentioned was integrated as an important authority into the exegetical system and intellectual lineage of the Bhutanese Drukpa Kagyu. Um, so, while Jishaka Winchens, of course, generally is known for having considered himself the incarnation of Shakya Shoktan and was quite the fan of Shakya Shoktan, um, I was able to demonstrate in those works for the first time an explicit doctrinal imprint, I will call it of Shakya Shokten on the Bhutanese Drukpa Kagyu School. Yeah, and of course, um, I would like to add much more needs to be done here on this aspect and others, um, building on the work I did.
1: Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating kind of an ecosystem of texts, right, that you are mapping out in this book, which I really appreciate that goes beyond the borders of space, of course, but also time, right? It's across several centuries. Uh, so it's really, really fascinating. And also what I love about this book is that you also um, went to sources beyond, um, you know, the traditional textual sources that Buddhist studies scholars use. Um, So you relied on archival materials, fieldwork, of course, but also online sources such as social media, uh, Facebook and and YouTube videos, for example, to study the life of Jagunda Rinchen. Who is a person who who basically lived in this century of modernity, right? <laughs> yes. Um. So, what are some of the interesting things you were able to discover through these very innovative sources?
2: Yeah, that's such an interesting aspect, as you say, um, going back to the 18th century and then you know coming, you know, arriving in the 20th century and how I, in a way, um. Yeah, it included that into my research methodologies. So thanks for pointing that out and giving me the opportunity to talk about that a little bit more. And what was also then important to do differently in different parts of this book, right, when it comes to research methodologies. My research was, of course, mainly historical, philological, and text critical, but also included archival and field research in 2014 at the National Library and Archives of Bhutan in Timbu and at different other field sites in Bhutan. And in some, I really have to say, this day in Bhutan was really decisive for this book. Maybe first of all, before we go into the biographical sources, also some of those Mahamudra works were only accessible in the National Library and Archives of Bhutan. And so, therefore, I'm especially indebted to Yeshi Lendop, with whom I worked there to be able to access two versions of jacques root text um, because this work is not included in um, his collected works or otherwise accessible through digital collections, the many digital collections we nowadays have, right, we can access. But then I was also able to locate additional 18th century commentaries and different versions of them. This then enabled me to produce the first critical edition and annotated English translation. Uh, you had mentioned to make those texts accessible to also an English speaking audience. And I was also able to include a coloured facsimile edition of two versions of J. Shakyunchen Su text um, in the appendix of my book. So that about um, that about the Mahmuda works. Regarding then the textual sources for Jenwinchen's life, I located the earliest biographical account in the library of Tango Monastery near Timpu with the help of monks there, of course. And thanks to the hospitality and the trust of my Bhutanese colleagues and friends, I was able to visit several key sites of J.K. Inventions activities, such as his birthplace and last residence, and I'm very grateful for that. That was super helpful for my research. So therefore, from the beginning, I collaborated with Tibetan and Bhutanese scholars and practitioners, but also direct disciples of him. Um, this was helpful for clarifying explanations or practice instructions of Mahamudra that are not accessible through text and uh, text alone, and also to receive actually the oral transmission of J K. timely messenger. But this was also helpful for finding answers about specific questions I had collected about the life and works of J. K. Nguyen-Shen, and thereby accessing this rich oral tradition in contemporary Bhutan. And regarding social media. So since I first started to study J. Genunchen's life, I have personally seen a big increase in popularity within Bhutan, especially among the lay public in remembering, documenting, and preserving his life. Even with a minimal temporal gap to his passing in 1997, there's already a great variation in the form and content. So that means written, and oral forms or also traditional biographical accounts typically composed by the religious elites, of course, and on the other side, internet and social media contributions. Just one example from the biographical chapter would be the recent upload of extensive video footage from the 1990s on YouTube. This highly informative footage covers Jigme nguyen travels in his function as the chief abbot of Bhutan during 1992. And by extensive, I mean here, 11 separate movies ranging from nearly two hours to three hours each. So, so there's really something to do for scholars working more in that area of research. Yes. So from what I discovered and documented then in my research, um, um, I, I would suggest that studies about uh, contemporary 21st century Buddhist masters should include a thorough literary, critical, and philological historical analysis, of course, of the textual sources, but also a systematic ethnographic study of the oral traditions, and very important, also a media analysis, if possible, of course. And a media analysis addressing the preservation of life stories and what that means for more traditional forms of life writing of Buddhist masters I mean, whatever this traditional means to each of us, we would need to define that right in our research. Then, um, And we could do that through social media as part of mass media and the public sphere is extremely interesting in Bhutan, specifically considering the recent democratization process in Bhutan and, of course, the rapid digitalization of society. So then such threefold methodological approach acknowledges that there is a crucial and complex interplay between oral and textual forms. Of course, we know that, right, Uh, from um, the abundant research on compilation processes of Tibetan language, uh, life writings, or also collected works in the past, that those were often only put down in writing much later, um, and that often oral parallel traditions existed but the small but significant difference here is that today we would be able to trace this kind of shifts and changes live and in real time, especially through first-generation students and so forth, while for the past we only can reconstruct as much, right? So so this is a really great advantage here, and it was really important for me to point that out on the basis of this example
1: and the life of J.K. Nguyen yeah, thank you. This is a really important point. I feel, I mean, to, to consider the media dimensions of, of, you know, the memories of these contemporary Buddhist um, teachers and scholars is really important. But it's also helpful right, for younger scholars who are basically stuck <laughs> in places during the pandemic. There's no way that we can continue our fieldwork for many of us. Um, and also for you know various political reasons, there are certain parts of the Tibetan cultural uh, world landscape that you know it's it's becoming increasingly difficult to visit. So exploring the media dimension, the online dimension, um, is I think only going to be more and more crucial in the future. So thank you for you know, setting up an example for us in that way in this book. Yes,
2: and I feel also it would be really interesting to look more um, on methodology here in the future um, and you know how one really could combine um, those three, let's say, main methodologies together. And as you say, of course, like the second, ethnographic studies, that's, of course, uh, at the moment... Um, very problematic for a lot of scholars, but like in theory, we could talk about that. And and it, yeah, that's really an interesting thought you have that uh, we could even look more at um, a media analysis um, in those critical times where we cannot travel too much. So thanks for, yeah, that's a good insight.
1: Yeah, definitely. Digital ethnography. I, I know a few younger scholars who are, are already looking into this. I think it's going to be a very exciting field for the future. Um, but moving on to chapters uh, of the book. Chapter one, um, entitled Buddhism and Politics, Bhutan and Beyond. Um, here introduces the readers uh, of the book into the history of the Jukpa Kagyu schools in Tibet and Bhutan, as well as the foundation of the Bhutanese um. Klujuk branch following Shemjun's establishment of a unified state of Bhutan in the 17th century. Um, So the office of the highest religious post in Bhutan, that of the Juk Jekempo, that the protagonist of the book, Jekindarunshan, held in the 20th century, uh, was also established during this period in the 17th century. Um so tell us a little bit about this office of the chief abbot of Bhutan uh, especially for those listeners who you know might not be very familiar with Bhutanese history what does this position entail and how did it change over the centuries
2: Yes uh, indeed I think it would be very helpful to talk a little bit about the story background um which will help to understand in general the topics addressed in the interview later better um so thanks for the question as you mentioned, the office of the chief abbot was established in the 17th century when Shabdrona and or his successors institutionalized the joint Tuford system of governance. So that's how I chose to translate a little bit freely the dual system of governance common in the Tibetan cultural area and that we know under the Tibetan terminologies of, for example, nida and Chisunchuk or similar The reason for that I translate that in that way, simplified here, is that in my opinion, in Bhutan at least, this is not a dual system only with two branches, but there is this unifying figure on top of everything of this dual system. Um, In earlier times, this was Shabdrung and his successors, often more symbolically also, and today this is the king of Bhutan as head of state, hence the joint in my translation of the term. Okay, back then... uh, to Shabdung. Shabdung under Shaptrung there were two branches in the government. The Bhutanese regent exercised political power, while the chief abbot of Bhutan oversaw the religious institutions um, very generally. But in the political reality of the next two centuries, this was much more complicated. There was serious power struggles between the different factions, especially also about the succession of Shaptrung. This is important to know as a background because due to these power struggles and the changing constellations between the actors in, within this form of governance, in which the boundaries between the society's spheres of religion and politics were permanently negotiated and shifted, also the position and the role of the chief abbot differed significantly. And that's also part of a new research project I'm working on, where I look at the political agency of the ninth Chief Abbot J. so our author of the root text. Long story short, in 1907, then, the absolute monarchy under the Wangchuk dynasty was established and then transformed into the constitutional monarchy since 2008, but still with the structural continuity of the joint two-fold system of governance. These changes, I would say, however, hardly touched on the official status or the function of the office of the chief abbot. So, this chronological perspective um, you addressed. And overall, this puts Bhutan, of course, in a unique historical and analytical setting because from the three major Buddhist governments that we had, uh, this system of governance um, and and that had the system of governance instituted in the 17th century. Tibet and Sikkim don't exist anymore independently. And Bhutan is the only one left. So much here maybe about what influenced the role of the Chief Abbot of Bhutan in a chronological perspective. When it comes now to today, and then also, of course, to the main person we are talking here about the 69th Chief Abbot of Bhutan, and N. The appointment process and the duties of um, the chief abbot are determined in the constitution of the kingdom of Bhutan from 2008. In brief, a suitable candidate is appointed by the king of Bhutan based on his erudition and level of spiritual realization. So by merit and not by incarnation. And how one would qualify and measure that, so to speak, um, is also very much specified. So for starters, it would be good to be accomplished in the generation and completion stage of the Tantric meditation, or one also needs to belong to the Kalyu school and so forth. So what follows is that this is, of course, often already a very famous Buddhist master and of a certain age. Um, As we also saw with Jikan Rinchen, who was already 65 when he was appointed to the office of the chief abbot of Bhutan, so then the chief abbot is also, of course, since the 17th century, the spiritual leader of the Drukpa Kagyu school in Bhutan and is highly respected among the Bhutanese. And this high symbolic status is, for example, also visible in the official dress code in Bhutan that only allows the king of Bhutan and the chief abbot to wear a specific scarf, a saffron scarf. Um, so then then maybe a little bit about what, what are the official duties of a chief abbot. He basically oversees all the activities of religious institutions from the Drukbakhaku school in the country, so the Drukbakhaku school, not the Nyingma school. And is also the chairman of the Commission of Monastic Affairs that includes, for example, the central monastic body of Bhutan. While the Chief Abbot of Bhutan does not exercise any official political power, as we see in this arrangement um, since 2008, he is, of course, indispensable for a variety of state rituals and therefore also connected to the political and public sphere very much. So from blessing the COVID-19 vaccines upon the arrival in Bhutan over deciding about the starting date of the vaccination campaign as found auspicious according to the Buddhist calendar, to the execution of the many, many state rituals of the Buddhist protector deities of the Drukpa Kagyu school, for example, that should protect against any inner and outer problems and calamities and so forth. So, so we have to always think um, about that based on the cosmological order of tantric Buddhism, this kind of should ensure these rituals and he's also part of that, of course, should ensure well-being, peace and harmony in Bhutan among other things. So, so I would say today's role of the chief abbot that we have to see in the context of this transformed and modernist joint 2 system of governance always in Bhutan, and it's therefore also very complex, but also very fascinating.
1: It's really fascinating that they're also in charge of of you know um, um, giving blessings right to to the vaccines. That's very fascinating to learn, and also just to clarify, um, did Jake and Derentian write uh, a timely message? after he became Abbot? Uh, no. So unfortunately,
2: and I will say a little bit more about that, that a lot of the works of Jake and Richard's are not um, dated, but that then the biographical accounts also help very much with that. But unfortunately for um, for The Timely Messenger, so his work, we don't have an exact date. Um, it's just clear that he wrote it after the um, 1950s. So when he returned to Bhutan from Tibet. Um, And I would um, most probably, um, as an educated guess, say that this is, of course, um, we we talk more about the nature of this text and then I would say it is in the context of his um, activities as the abbot of um, first Tango and then Shira because it has also this pedagogical purpose and goal I mentioned before. So it makes sense because a lot of those the works of those character i would say what were produced at that time but we don't have we don't have a colophon that says it was written um, in that year in that specific year unfortunately
1: Oh, that's really intriguing, and and uh, to go back to your previous answer to my question, I really appreciate you pointing out that Bhutan. Maybe many people don't really think about this, where we're, we just sort of take it for granted. Bhutan is is the only place that still has this patron priest relationship or the dual governance, like you mentioned, and it will be a prime example to to study the current kind of a contemporary relation between Buddhism and politics, uh, which is, you know, which is probably your, your next project you briefly mentioned, right?
2: Yes. And I've also already worked a little bit on this complex relationship, um, especially, um, yeah, because it's it's not as easy because the mindset and the theoretical framework often in the study of secularity, modernity, and so forth works, of course, um, not with the, the framework we actually need to address Such an arrangement we have in Bhutan. So, where um, certain um, tantric, um, yeah, the tantric cosmology is still part of the mindset and also how religion and politics go together and so forth. So, that's super interesting. I've already written um, an article about that, but we need much more work on that. And I think that will also help to discuss these topics of religion, politics, secularity, modernity in the context of other religions and um, in religious studies, one of on the of religious studies.
0: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie smart, protein plus, and keto. These are two minute meals slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: Wow, fascinating. I'm definitely looking forward <laughs> to your future works. Um, so let's maybe talk about Jiginton intervention's life a little bit. So this is a chapter, um, chapter two's uh, theme. And here uh, you go into detail about Jake intervention's life and the different biographical sources uh, that you have consulted in the process. Um, so first, what kinds of biographical sources are out there for this 20th century Bhutanese master, and um, how are they compared to other biographies and hagiographies in the life writing genre of the greater Tibetan culture area? Here, I'm asking, i um, specifically about um, the fact that you know, since he is a 20th century um, figure, um, do we see more themes and and um, motifs of modernity coming out from his uh, biographies? Yeah, um,
2: maybe to begin with, there are three biographical accounts, and and I focus mostly on the first and earliest. This is a work I have translated, and that's therefore now accessible to us, and that I also used uh, in my in-depth analysis of not only J. K. R. Winshan's life, but also his collected works. Regarding the second part um, of your question, so how are uh, um, how how do these biographical sources compare to other life writings in the Tibetan cultural area and some aspects um, of modern uh, developments? Um, it's maybe good to introduce them one by one a little bit closer and look at certain features such as structure, style, and content with some examples, maybe illustrating my points a little better. On top, this also helps to understand um, yeah, um, what we talked earlier about, namely possible research methodologies when it comes to contemporary Tibetan and Bhutanese life writing uh, today. So first, we have the earliest detailed bi- biographical and autobiographical account, the Dangshal Melong, so let's call it here in short The Crystal Mirror, that was published in 1999. So very close to the time of Jinkhan pass passing in 1997. The author is George Lopin Künle, today himself an eminent Buddhist master and Ken Nürnchen's direct and close disciple. George Lopin Künle is also the principal of the five Lopins of the central monastic body. So simplified, um, he holds uh, the second highest office in the religious branch of the Joint twofold System of Governance in Bhutan. I also had the honor to meet him and other close disciples at J.K. Nürnchen's last residence, Yang Champu, when I was in Bhutan. And within the... Namta genre, so the complete liberation genre, the crystal mirror falls into the expression of realization works, so it's a talk show, And as common in this genre, there's a great variety of literary forms and content besides the main biographical narrative in our example. Those are oral teachings, direct practice instructions, songs of experience, short autobiographical notes and poems um, by Jake Ganyan Winshan. And very important, the crystal mirror is built around and includes Jake Ganyan Winshan's brief first autobiography. deutsch lappen uh, very carefully separates those different sections and so it's always clear who is speaking, where it is coming from and so forth. Furthermore, the crystal mirror enabled me to date, as I mentioned before, a lot of different works from the Sungbum, and I have also documented that done in the appendix and in the biographical chapter, and also to understand their context, um, for example, when they don't have a colophon, of course. And so to reconstruct also a sort of record of teachings and practices and transmissions was also possible because there is also no Sennig and J.K. Uh, collected works. So we understand much better in what kind of teaching, practice, and transmission lineages he stood and yeah, how vast that was, so to speak. In general, the crystal mirror demonstrates the common features of traditional life writing, for example, in the form of the three layers of outer, inner, and secret biography. And also in its structure. So it consists of those typically three chronologically arranged parts, the first pre-birth things, and of course also the authentication um, of what, what emanation and what incarnation he is. So Jagan um, Jensen is considered one of the incarnations of the Chertan Lea Blinkba and also second Sultrim Danden Rinpoche, and the emanation of Mapa and the Mahasiddha Dombi Heruka. And the second part then deals with Jigandr Rinchen's actual life that was from 1926 to 1997. And the third part um, addresses Jigandr Rinchen's illness and the subsequent wondrous events surrounding his death until the consecration of his remains in the Red Query Stupa in 1999, so two years later. So based on my literary and text critical analysis of this work it's definitely comparable to traditional and classical forms of life writing in the greater tibetan cultural area also pre 20th century despite being printed in modern book format and what's additionally very interesting to observe are the specific grammatical and stylistic characteristics that bhutanese authors employ when writing in classical tibetan This is in itself a really fascinating, and, but also separate topic, which should be further addressed, um, for example, by specialists in linguistics. Then we have a second, very brief biographical account with few concrete dates. And it was composed one year later in 2000. But it produces the same dates as the first. And then when I was working... Already on my final book manuscript, a third, again, more detailed Tibetan language account was published in 2017. That was commemorating 20 years of Jake passing and was followed then in 2020 by an English translation to make his life story more accessible to a broader audience among the Bhutanese public, who would, of course, otherwise not be able to read this account in classical Tibetan. So, and the short and sweet title of this work is Smiling Moon. And to start with, the author uh, himself, Kempel Zering, calls this a supplementary text to the Crystal Mero and J.K. N. own autobiographical account. And while Smiling Moon is based on the Crystal Mero, much more orally transmitted episodes and memories from first-generation disciples and other contemporary Bhutanese are included. However, in general, they do not follow any systematic format of identification or location. But but they're indeed a very good start for further ethnographic studies. Then, and that's really um, unique to this autobiography, this this biography, excuse me, um, The Smiling Moon, it is richly illustrated with first and foremost photographs of Jigen and Rinchan at many different stages of his life. And... Yeah, in formal settings, but also informal settings. And it includes photographs of many eminent 19th and 20th century Tibetan and Bhutanese um, Buddhist masters. So as, for example, Jujam Rinpoche, Duken Tsubinpoche, Teton Lea Blinkpa, and Zunam Sangpo, But also lesser known Buddhist masters, where I'm actually not so sure if other photographs of them have ever been published. So in addition, there are many... Unique photographs of members of the royal family of Bhutan, that's also really interesting. Other major patrons and monastic and lay practitioners, as well as photographs of many religious sites and ceremonies and so forth. On top of everything, the publication features three of J.K.N. Rinchen's autographs and other religious paintings. So this publication, in fact, really thoroughly and in some cases even for the first time, documents visually religious life and important religious figures in 20th century Bhutan, but also Tibet, of course, only until the 1960s there. Uh, On a more personal note, I think this is such a beautiful and amazing publication to put all that together. So, so I mean, speaking from the perspective of a mainly a textual scholar here, usually working with texts, I had already met, so to speak, all those Buddhist masters and people when I was working on the translation of the Crystal Mirror, the first biographical account. But I had no clue how many of them looked like in real life. And then I just got to see all those amazing and wonderful photographs. And suddenly all those names in the text got a face to it. So, um, furthermore, I had actually also looked for autographs of and and myself when I was in Bhutan. So it was so nice to finally see them also preserved and cared for. So that was kind of really the icing on the cake, for lack of a better word here, celebrating the end of my very long research journey about and invention. And just before I forget, thanks again to everyone who has helped me to access those materials. So that would be the monks of Tango Monastery, first of all, but then also Dr. Françoise Pommery and Dr. Georgie Penjore. So in some, we could maybe say Smiling Moon employs some innovative and intriguing features in life writing, as I have just pointed out, that reach then also a much broader audience besides the monastic elites in Bhutan, and that we also find nowadays in other publications about um, more modern, <laughs> publications about Tibetan Buddhist masters in general. But it also still follows the way of more traditional and classical forms of life writing, in particular in content, I would say. Yes, um, I think that's, that's about what I would like to share about those wonderful biographical accounts.
1: Thank you. this is really helpful um, telling us um the consistencies right in these writings, but also the innovative kind of developments that are happening, which is you know again a reminder uh, for for scholars who are you know looking for topics, you know this is something that we can definitely look into these new t- types of genre and, and and new developments in traditional genres yes um and just a, as a kind of um additional question to this question on the Life writing genre um, and biographical writings. Um, since Je- Ginder Renshin was active in the 20th century, so f- specifically from 1926 uh, when he was born to 1997, um, how did biographical writings about him engage with contemporary events in his life and geopolitical issues? Um, you, you mentioned that he went to, he visited um, quite extensively Tibet in the 1950s and came back to Bhutan in the 1960s. Am I? Correct? Yes. Yes, and and so so how did he remember that time? Because we most of us know that the 1950s is rather kind of um, a violent um, political era in in the history of modern Tibet.
2: Yes, uh, indeed, the biographical writings reference the invasion of Tibet and um, document also the following exile of Tibetan Buddhist masters to Bhutan, but also more generally document, as we just saw, major other contemporary developments in the religious and political landscape in Bhutan after the nineteen fifties. Um, so, so he came back in nineteen fifty six. Uh, sorry, so not in the nineteen sixties. Um, so, first regarding Tibet, both the invasion and also then the exile of. Tibetan Buddhist masters is very much linked to Jigan Rinchen's fate and have influenced him strongly. So, after Jigan Rinchen had already started his Nyingma on top of his Drukpa education, his Nyingma religious education in Bumtang and Eastern Bhutan, he had continued to travel to different places in central Tibet in 1952 and studied and re- received transmissions um, and also practiced they are from uh, um, with important Sakya and Nyingma scholars, mainly in the Rimei lineage. And initially, in 1956, he wanted to travel to Eastern Tibet to continue his non-sectarian religious education. However, due to the increasingly difficult political situations and fights that are referenced also there, he followed the advice of his guru, the famous Dr. Master Rao Peldenchuky Jagba, and returned home to Bhutan in 1956. Moreover, then, of course... And um, when and Rinchen returned to Bhutan, his exchange with eminent Buddhist masters from different Tibetan Buddhist traditions continued shortly after, as many of them were then tragically forced to flee Tibet. And also for many of them, Bhutan became their new safe refuge in exile, right? So this enabled and Rinchen to continue his non-sectarian education and exchange of teachings, practices, and transmissions, and one of the most well-known Tibetan masters in Bhutan, um, who also significantly influenced Trink was, of course, Dilgo Khenz Rinpoche. And, of course, the biography documents all those exchanges in detail. And as I mentioned um, a little bit earlier, the biography then kind of enables me also to produce something like a record of teachings received. So um, embedded, implicit, senyek, we could say. And then, okay, that, that would be about Tibet, but then also I would like to mention that there are um, also, it's also documented in the biographical accounts how he engaged in important societal contemporary events and developments in Bhutan. It cannot be overstated how significant Jiggen Rinchan's contributions, contributions were as an author, scholar and teacher for first those doctrinal innovations, which I'm of course also talking about when I'm talking about Mahamuda and intellectual agenda, but also for the modernization of the religious educational institutions of the Dukbakakyu school after the nineteen fifties. So for example, then later in the eighties in the seventies and eighties, in his function as abbot of the Tango Chedra and Paduding And his song includes hundred and twenty eight. Works, so that's a lot right and it covers all relevant topics of scholasticism debate and meditation and rituals and works are used today in Bhutan so for example the doctrinal works are often supplements of the official higher monastic curriculum for students for further clarification or memorization and then of course I had already um, referenced the the state rituals, right? For example, lots of his ritual manuals and liturgies are also used in everyday religious life in Bhutan. So in some, I think, what I was able to document uh, through working on the biography is that the tragic fate of Tibet was closely linked to Jai Jigang personal life trajectory as the Bhutanese and immensely influenced also the vision and his religious doctrinal identity he then systematically developed after his return for his own school, the Jokhba Kagyu School.
1: Thank you. Thank you for uh, answering my question on this part. Um, It's it's, it's a really fascinating story. Again, through your work, we really see sort of the networks of connections, right, beyond Tibet, things that were happening in Tibet um, also had impacts um, all over the Himalayan region that, you know, we should really pay more attention to. Um, and let's talk about maybe the, um, the intellectual agenda of <laughs> <Yes. laughs> Jiganda Renshin, right? This is a, a really big part of your book since you also provided translations of his commentary and also um, the facsimiles and also a critical edition of the text. So um, there's a lot of interesting things to discuss here. Um, so in this chapter, you show us how Jiganda Renshin engages with several topics of the Mahamudra controversy, uh, since its first systematized criticism by Shaka Pandita in the 13th century. Right, so in other words, this 20th century Bhutanese master is engaging with a debate that has lasted for roughly 80 centuries, for right? 800 years, as you have pointed out in the book. Um, so why did Jake and Renchen want to or choose to engage with this debate and why did he feel the need to defend his school from critiques posed from hundreds of years ago? So a little bit about this um, Mahamudra controversy, maybe.
2: Yeah, um, of course, with this question, you are hitting definitely the mark because of my work. This this is indeed the core. The Mahamudra doctrine and also the intellectual agenda are, of course, indeed at the core of my work. And um, I explain, of course, everything about that in depth um, in this chapter three but also in the detailed annotated translation in chapter five. So it's maybe good to differentiate here between what we can call sort of more general reasons for the relevance of the Mahamudra controversy until today that make it just logical for a scholar like and Rinchen to engage in this debate and the more individual reasons of him that he explicitly expressed in his work. So, when Sakai Panditja raised his critique about Mahamuja in several of his works, first and foremost, of course, the Domsom Rabie, we have to imagine that not as some kind of detached debate about one specific teaching in one of the specific Tibetan schools that for some reason he personally didn't like, but all those points Sakya Panditja is making were connected and address. we could say, those hot and unresolved topics of Tibetan scholasticism and exegesis that have been debated among scholars throughout Tibetan history and partially already in India, and I think will also be discussed in the future and are at the heart of Tibetan exegesis. This then, of course, forced those scholars from the Kagyu schools to defend their Mahamudra teachings also in the light of those much bigger, broader, controversial um, issues. So that that gives an idea how big the thing is. So here, maybe some examples of what some of those hot topics would be: are uh, the integration of Buddha nature theory and Yogacara concepts into Tibetan Buddhism, and there were also different, very different approaches to the Madhyamaka philosophy in Tibet. The Then also this entails the relationship between the teachings of the second and the third turning of the wheel of the Dharma and the relationship between gradual and more sudden approaches to the past, uh, generally speaking, and many more. So this then resulted for the scholars in this mostly very polemical exchange um, between mostly Kagyu scholars and, of course, scholars from other Tibetan Buddhist schools, mostly Sakyan Gelug during the 14th to 17th centuries with the peak, as I mentioned, of those debates between the 15th and 16th centuries. I also would like to say that here I'm approaching this topic, of course, exclusively from the doctrinal side and not addressing the highly chaotic and complex political context in which those debates took place in Tibet at that time. That's also another very interesting aspect and uh, topic to look at. But I'm in my presentation here today and also what I worked on, I'm, of course, looking at the doctrinal exegetical side of things. Through his through this defense in general of the paramount teaching of those scholars uh, from the Kagyu school, a very elaborated system of Mahamudra was developed, very different to before and to it w- what it was in India. And this is the reason why in my book I call this later forms of Mahamudra after this debate had started, um, more something like a Mahmuda doctrine and meditative system, because it's really a real system. Then specifically from the perspective of the Kagyu school in Tibet, this debate had been considered resolved mainly through the work of the eminent masters, so the fourth, Pema kapo and his disciple, Kivansange Dorje. However, as we saw before, in Bhutan, only a little later in the 18th century, we see that J. Shakarinchan had again addressed the debate in the meeting with Tibetan and Bhutanese Druk-Bakakyu masters and um, in his who text, The Point of Spear of a Siddha. I was able to show in my analysis that this is in fact an important example of doctrinal religious identity building in the Bhutanese Druk-Bakakyu school. That means relying just on the expositions of the earlier eminent Tibetan lineage holders was no longer considered sufficient. This as a general background, and of course, and Nwinshan stands in this lineage of Buddhist masters. Then more regarding the individual reasons, and Nwinshan says explicitly in his colophon that he wanted to clarify all those misunderstandings about Mahamudra that he had observed at, at, at his time. He adds that although the detailed prose commentary from the 18th century by the 13th chief, Abodian had actually perfectly explained everything J. Shaggyanunshan had said in his root text, he still feels that people don't get the profound and difficult points today, and he hopes that his work would change that. This urgency and purpose is also expressed in the ornamental title of this work, of course, The Timely Messenger. Furthermore, J. Genunshan composed his commentary in furs, generally a little bit unconventional for Tibetan commentary literature to serve the primary and practical purpose that I had mentioned also before, road memorization, so that disciples could better understand the key points. And we also have the question and answer format of the earlier work still preserved, um, so this g type of work. And finally, and more broadly speaking, another reason is simply that it's, of course, necessary for an important Buddhist master like him to position himself in this important debate about Mahamudra, because it's a cornerstone of his doctrinal identity.
1: Yeah, thank you for really going into details of this question. I really like the part in your book where you um, argued and, and, and reminded us that, you know, these uh, polemical texts is also a way for a certain tradition to form their own identity uh, against certain kinds of traditions, uh, conflicts within larger Buddhist traditions. And we can definitely see that here and a continued kind of need to have that identity making. So we definitely see it in this chapter. It- yes uh we can
2: we can really say and uh, Matthew Kapstein has pointed that out uh, a long time ago that in a way um identity is created doctrinal religious identity is created by um by defense and you know reacting to all those issues that had already been discussed sometimes back to uh, to to India uh, back in India, so that defense is establishment we could also say. So and, and that's not just um, when we talk about the Mahmouda, um debate or the Kagyu school. I think that's really a, a characteristic of Tibetan scholasticism and identity building in general.
1: Yeah. So thank you for that. Can you maybe tell us a bit more about the specific critiques being addressed in Jigendo Rinchen's uh, Timely Messenger, and how did he address these critiques?
2: Yeah, to begin with, the critiques that are addressed in J. G. N. Winshan's very dense commentary, The Timely Messenger, are really numerous. So J. G. N. Winshan's commentary as well as J. G. N. Unchan's Wood verses, The Pointed Spear of the Sitter, and the other 18th century commentaries are divided basically into seven chapters. Then within the chapters, there are so many sub-questions and topics addressed many means here, over 40. So the number depends a little bit on how one personally counts, as there is no official topical outline provided by the author. And to just give an idea about the density of this work, for example, one of such subtopics alone would cover something like the rebuttal of Sakya Pandita's specific criticism that identified Mahamudra with Chinese Buddhism or Hashang Mahayana, whatever that meant, <laughs> Um, and scholars in Tibetan Buddhist studies will know that this topic alone is very complicated, as it goes back all the way to the Samya debate. So, in some thematically, Jegan mentioned really covers the entire Mahamudra controversy in a very concise style, though. And it's of course impossible, um, and we don't want to, we, we don't want to do that here to talk about all of those critiques. But I think it's good to. Uh, give an idea by providing a run-through of the seven chapters with some examples each um, that will be pretty much very much doctrinal um, and that will be interesting particular for scholars who work on Mahamudra. This will then also demonstrate how Jake and addresses those critiques and establishes Mahamudra as a correct Buddhist doctrine and practice. So let's get to it. The first chapter Addresses the scriptural authenticity of Mahamudra, means that Mahamudra is grounded in the words of the Buddha. It better should be, right? So, more concretely, Sutra and Tantric scriptures, and then discusses how those different Mahamudra scriptural traditions relate to each other. And this establishes Mahamudra then um, indeed as also being able to be taught outside of the formal Mantrayana in certain circumstances. And is of course, a rebuttal to one of the main points of Saka Pandita, um, who um, maintain that Mahamudra can only be practiced uh, in the context of the Mantrayana. By the way, I, I would just like to throw in a random observation here that is not part of my research, but nevertheless interesting to get a feeling for how all those complex, abstract, doctrinal topics here relate to Tibetan Buddhism in a more global and contemporary perspective. So how is this debate kind of still relevant beyond Tibetan scholasticism? Of course, Mahamudra became very popular with lay practitioners after the globalization of Tibetan Buddhism for a variety of reasons. But in my personal observation, Western lay practitioners generally often don't know that there ever has existed something like a Mahamudra debate controversy. At the same time, actually, topics found in the Mahamudra controversy are still discussed by them, unknowingly, in a way, and are not as new as one might think. So, for example, here in this question, there's a discussion, a sub-discussion, about what makes a valid tantric initiation and how strictly has such a valid tantric initiation follow the procedures laid out in the canonical text? And... Can it just be constituted by basically the unique relationship between the root guru and his disciple is a question here especially. So to translate this into contemporary discourses, Tibetan Buddhist sanghas discuss um, very heatedly uh, heatedly, uh, sometimes, for example, to what extent Zoom initiation would be valid or not. And we have so many different opinions on that out there by practitioners and Buddhist sanghas. So so this is just one example for the relevance of some topics in this debate and that we still find them. But often, yeah, there, there is no awareness that they are connected to earlier discussions, which are still um, crucial today. Okay, but back to our tiny messenger in the second chapter, then J. Gennon Winchan discusses the exegetical authenticity of the Mahamudra doctrine by looking in depth at the Indian Mahamudra works and other practical instructions and lineages. As were systematized in the Kagyu school. He specifically then goes on to discuss discrepancies in their canonical status. This also includes, for example, discussion of Maitriyanata Samanisikara teaching cycle and the Vatnagotra Vibhaga for Mahamudra exegesis. In the third chapter, J. Ganin establishes the correct Mahamudra view in relation to the Madhyamaka view. And also, of course, those um, criticism addresses this uh, criticisms about Yogachara and Hashang Mahayana, among other things. Of course, this part is strongly dominated by J. nguyen leaning on Pima Kapo's systematization of the Mahmuta view, but also documents those um, intriguing influences by Shaka Shoktan and other non-Drukpa Kagyu masters. Furthermore, as elsewhere in J. nguyen work, lesser-known traditions such as the Taklong Kagyu are referenced here. Then, Jigen mentions fourth chapter focuses on the, I mean, extremely elaborated meditation system in Mahamudra and evolves around the well-known discussion about non-meditation and the relationship between, for example, Mahamudra meditation and the commonly accepted Mahayanic and Tantric classifications of meditation. So, obviously, Mahamudra meditation has to be in harmony with those accepted categorizations. The fifth chapter then inquires about the characteristics and the result of the mamuja conduct in the post-meditative state and of course addresses one of Sakya Pandita's main criticisms how a single method or factor, in this case insight, could soteriologically suffice on the past. Jiggen Renshan, of course, vehemently defends the evident overemphasis of meditation and view in his Mahamudra tradition that, of course, in his view, does not contradict all what the gradual past teaches and also the necessary accommodation of merit for the form bodies. Connected somewhat also to the discussion then in the fifth chapter, the sixth chapter addresses the relationship between the ground and result on the Mahamudra path. More specifically, this discussion refers to the concept of the self-sufficient white remedy. I'm using here the translation of uh, David Jackson um, of this term, which was, of course, heavily criticized by Sakya Pandita. I have to add here also fairly that I'm only dealing um, in my Um, depiction here with Pandita's hard criticisms but of course he did not reject Mahamudra per se he also composed works that established his view of a correct Mahamudra so just to add that here yes and then finally the seventh chapter examines the nature and characteristics of the root guru and the soteriological function of respect and devotion from the disciple's side and kindness and blessing from the root guru's side and what role they play in the context of the specific Mahamudra direct pointing out instructions to the nature of the mind. The, topic, uh, the topics dealt uh, with here do influence most of the argumentations in the other six chapters as well and, and thereby establish how essential the role of the root guru is for the correct understanding, practice and transmission of Mahamudra. In some what Jikan achieves with the strategy of those seven chapters and in dealing in this particular way with the Mahamudra debate is that he establishes the Mahamudra doctrine and meditative system as a completely authentic Buddhist teaching by eliminating all contradictions with the authoritative Buddhist systems of Pramitayana and Mantayana. And second, he establishes Mahamudra also as a paramount teaching within those Buddhist doctrinal systems, which is, of course, crucial for him as a Jokbakagyu master. So just to briefly review, the Chanmi Messenger is held together by, we could say, the bracket of authenticating means in chapter 1, 2, and 7. Those are, of course, scripture, so Buddha's word, exposition, and the root guru. By then, the Mahamuja ground, path, and result are covered in chapter 3, 4, 5, and 6, addressing each view, meditation, conduct, and the result. So this text is very complicated, but in a way, it's also very simple and very clearly structured. In conclusion, the timely messenger is a real gem. Through my translation, one is not only able to understand Jiganin Rinchen's Mahamudra interpretation, but also the positions of J. Rinchen and also the 13th Chief Abu Dientan commentary, due to this intriguing intertextuality of this text corpus that we addressed earlier. On top, I identify and document in depth the positions of all those other Tibetan and Bhutanese scholars and lineage masters referenced by him. And of course, the canonical sources. I also additionally make the effort to reference Jake mentions other works of mostly doxographical character, which are connected to um, the lines of argumentation and so forth, mm, and also point out towards Buddhist masters that have been influential for him, such as Yumi Pamgyatsu. So, because of this, this is a kind of roadmap through the reception history of Mahamudra throughout the centuries, back to Sakya Pandita. And that's really unique in comparison to other Mahamudra works, which often deal with a couple of different aspects of, for example, Mahamudra meditation or the Mahamudra conduct and so forth. As a result, my work is very useful also for research about Mahamudra beyond the Drukpa Kagyu school in Bhutan. And I really hope that my honestly very challenging journey through the Tiny Messenger will therefore be put to good use by other scholars It's definitely worth studying the long footnotes. They are there for a good reason.
1: All right. Thank you so much for going to um, all those points point by point for us uh, in such a kind of extensive manner. And um, of course, our readers, our listeners right, are uh, encouraged to pick up a copy of The Timely Messenger and read the super detailed translations and annotated uh, critical edition of, of the text in the book. Um, lots of exciting fo- footnotes, <laughs> like you said, to explore. Um, And lastly, we have one, I guess two more questions, but um, one last question um, with regard to the topic is, um, as one of the pioneering scholars in the study of Mahamudra traditions and, and Buddhism in Bhutan, what advices do you have for current and future scholars interested in researching on these topics? Oh, that's too kind of you to say.
2: Um, but I'm definitely happy to share some of my thoughts about research regarding Mahamuja and Buddhism in Bhutan and things I've learned and observed during this process of writing this book. I will focus here on the Drukpa school and, and not the Bhutanese Nyingma tradition because that is not my field of expertise. So the first thing is, as I mentioned, that we have a significant gap in our field of study means Tibetan and Bhutanese Buddhist studies when it comes to philosophical doctrinal positions, practices, and rituals in the Bhutanese Drukpa Kagyu school, in particular for the time period since the split from the Tibetan branch in the 17th century. So we need to pay more attention to the fact that there never has been one doctrinally monolithic Drukpa Kagyu school that is supposedly dominated by the super great vision of the omission Pemakapu eternally, but we need to understand the diversity within the different branches of the Drukpa Kagyu School in the future much better. Lots of things are even happening still today, as we saw, with the activities of contemporary Bhutanese masters engaging in explication, debate and exposition. But then to achieve that goal, and it became also much clearer to me in the process um, of working on those later Bhutanese Buddhist masters, we need more in depth studies on the intellectual history of the Kagyu school in general. So, what I mean by that is that although really important research on some Drukbakagyu masters has already been done, and I'm also summarizing this in my introduction, we need to explore a lot more. As, for example, also Professor Roger Jackson uh, has pointed out, uh, we we don't have a complete translation of Pemakapo's, um important Mahamudra work, the Chachengenso, for example. But having said this, we also need more work on the earlier formation of the Jokbakaki school prior to uh, the fourth Pema Pemakapo, and the second Dukchen, um, Kungapeljo, considered usually as two of the big systematizers of the school. And so this refers to the earlier lineage history masters such as Gutsangpa, Tsangpakaye, and so forth, up to the Indian masters. This is, for example, critical when we talk about the relationship between the so-called SEPO teachings, so teachings on mixing and transferring, how they are called in the Kagyu school, or of course better known as the Six Doctrines of Naropa otherwise, and Mahamudra. so the relationship between the path of liberation and a path of means in Tibetan Tantric Buddhism. So there are significant gaps in systematic research in the early intellectual history of the Drogba school that logically make it then very challenging to study the later intellectual history of the Bhutanese branch. And that's something I encountered and which was a challenge. And this is also something which I have documented then as best as I could in footnotes uh, when I encountered those challenges. Then another area that I find, and maybe The last point um, that I find personally really exciting is the mutual doctrinal influence between Nyingma and Rukba Kagyu traditions in Bhutan. And I have pointed that out um, at several points in the interview. There's a natural closeness between those traditions, for example, in terms of the monastic education. So it's not as special um, generally, but there's also a complexity to this relationship, in particular when we look at doctrinal. Um, agendas, and also the constellation in Bhutan today. So that would be super interesting too. One could start here, for example, by studying Mahamudra in the context of the so-called Champo Sum. so the three great teaching, teachings, uh, Chaka Champo, Dzogchen, and Uma Champo. Of course, we have also a fourth but that is not included in this categorization by those authors. Professor Doji Wangshu actually has pointed out the importance of such research already for a long time. And in my work, I also saw that other Bhutanese authors engage in this framework of the sum, similar to earlier Rime masters, as visible in some other works of Jigen and as well. I will maybe end with some more practical advice uh, working about Buddhism in Bhutan. There are a lot of important texts in Bhutan that have not been studied, and and deserve to be translated very urgently. And they are also only available there. But it is also important to think carefully about how to access Bhutan for such research. And we talked a little bit about the difficulty of ethnographic studies before, right? And accessibility and also what is realistic. So I think that's very important to consider when, when one wants to engage in the study of Buddhism in Bhutan. In addition, I would say from my experience in 2014, it's really helpful not only to know classical Tibetan and Sanskrit for this textual work and translation of doctrinal text, but also to somewhat understand a bit of Dzongkar or Nepali when one wants to engage in field work in Western and Central Bhutan. So you see there's quite a lot of exciting stuff to work on and therefore, hey, scholars out there, please join me.
1: Thank you, indeed. Thank you for these really, really wonderful advice. Um, I hope more and more scholars will be jumping on to these new projects uh, together with you and really look forward to that. Um, one, one last question. I promise this is really the last <laughs> question. Um, so what are you working on now? What is, um, And also, what is one new book, um, academic or not, that you would recommend to our listeners?
2: Yes, I'd love to share a little bit um, also about my new research project. Um, In brief, I'm investigating identity and nation building in Bhutan in the 18th century and Yeah, we will somehow also see how that builds up on things I've been doing and things I've been mentioning throughout uh, the interview. Some crucial aspect to look at here is the agency of Bhutanese Buddhist masters, who were not only those important key figures at the intersection between religion and politics within Bhutan in this joint system of governance, but also diplomats in the foreign relations with the Grand and Podran government. And I will in particular focus on important diplomatic travels of several Bhutanese Chukwa Kagyu uh, masters, such as Jishaka Rinchen, again. <laughs> so this will for the first time actually shed light on the Bhutanese perspective in foreign politics in the greater Tibetan cultural area. And um, investigate also Bhutanese-Tibetan entangled history, so to speak. Another way to put it is that this is one important and still missing piece of the puzzle in research on the complex political and social history of the greater Tibetan cultural area. In a chronological perspective, such systematic historical analysis will help to understand the complex interplay between religion and politics that I have referenced also in this interview before, not only in the 18th century, but also today, much better. And what I find very fascinating personally also is that my research can contribute to understanding Bhutan's role better in the context of geopolitics of the British Raj and of course the Qing Empire. So this means looking at Bhutan's historical relevancy role in linking South Asia and East Asia. As a result, this then also questions this common perception that actually is kind of a product of the colonial lens on Bhutan, namely that describes Bhutan always as this tiny country in between and sandwiched between big powerhouses, and of course, before the British Empire and and the Qing Empire, and now that's of course always India and China, and um, for example. Natasha Call has analyzed this more in her work and also Sarah Schneiderman has addressed um, this in-betweenness of the Himalayan region uh, more broadly, also talking about Nepal. So that's kind of also where I feel I, I will be able to contribute something with looking at the 18th century. So that's that would be the localization of my research in our field more broadly. And then the reason why I also chose the 18th century is because it's a critical juncture in Bhutanese history – once again, when we go back to Shabdung, who founded and united Bhutan and whose death had been concealed for about half a century, when we arrived then in the 18th century, naturally, as Shabdung had been such a charismatic Buddhist ruler and tantric master, he left behind a substantial power vacuum. Consequently, we see that identity policies for building a new Bhutanese identity went on throughout the 18th century. Those identity politics... Um, took place in different societal areas and focused not only on religious doctrinal, as we saw already today, but also socio-cultural identity. And then finally, of course, national identity. Examples are the codification and standardization of monastic and civil laws and administration, commissioning of religious and political histories. And yes, in conclusion, that's a really interesting time to look at when, when, when it's about identity and nation building in Bhutan. And the imperial materials are also very interesting that I will look at Um, in, in brief. They're of two types. The first document, more individual perspectives of these Bhutanese Buddhist masters and their agency and Bhutanese Tibetan diplomacy and the political relations. And they are mostly autobiographical and biographical works. While the second type of sources... Are more contextualizing historiographical sources, such as the Bhutanese legal code and religious and political history. They represent, therefore, more of a collective perspective on those realities of the joint twofold system of governance in Bhutan and the identity policies. And my specific focus is on this important diplomatic travels from 1740 to 1748. Um, they have not been studied in detail, and in which those Bhutanese Buddhist masters were traveling as the first exchange group envoy to Tibet, together with actually a very important diplomat from the Tibetan side, the second daily Togokonga Dorje. And yeah, this was the first time after a century of wars, with first the Tsang rulers and then the and Poran government, and basically no access to Tibet. So that's, that's really an interesting, auspicious coincidence here to have those texts. Focusing then on the writings of the Ninth Chief Abbot um, of Bhutan, uh, Jeshak Arinshan, will also enable me not only to address his importance doctrinally, but also for those Tibetan Bhutanese politics and relationships. And I will also try to look, of course, at other figures on the Tibetan and Bhutanese side, which I will encounter when I um, go deeper into the textual work, right? And they are coming up all those surprises, which always coming up when you are working on text and translating them for the first time. Yeah, I think that's uh, maybe enough (laughs) about my project right now. And the second part, a new book that I could recommend. Actually, I just started to read a book, um, but I'm already totally enthusiastic about it and probably, therefore, I can already recommend it. So it's titled Finding the Mother Tree, Discovering the Wisdom of the Forest, and it was written by Suzanne Simard, who is a professor at UBC's Department of Forest and Conservation Sciences. Very simplified, it addresses how networks of underground fungi allow connected trees to share resources such as water, nutrients and carbon and basically how they communicate in a very complex and amazing way with each other. Just mind boggling to get into that. So in a way, this is not too much connected with my research, but also with my it it is uh, connected with my teaching because I also teach about um, Buddhist ethics and the environment Uh, But I think more broadly speaking that this book can make us question our existing attitudes towards nature and also develop some more humility towards and respect um, to the other than humans. So in my opinion, this uh, would um, maybe also contribute to tackling the climate crisis besides all the technical solutions and policy actions we of course also all need. Yeah, so um, yeah, that's. I, I, I think that's a really interesting book. So I would like to recommend that.
1: Thank you, thank you. That sounds like a really fascinating book. I mean, we're recording this episode today uh, in the morning, just when I, I undersea volcano... Um, you know, near Tonga erupted and, and all the West Coast. So Dagmar is in Vancouver. I'm in Santa Barbara. We all received tsunami warnings. So this really shows how connected the world, natural world is. And we need definitely more humility towards that. And I'm really excited about your um, upcoming research work. Definitely looking forward to that. And um, thank you. It comes out soon. (laughs) Oh, I think it will take some time, but I I will try my best. I think we've taken really a lot of your time already. Thank you so much for sharing your time, your passion for this project, and of course, your expertise. Congratulations again on this book. Thank you once again, Diana, for
2: having me here on this wonderful podcast series and being such a great host. It was a real pleasure to talk with you about my book. I would also like to use the opportunity to say once again thanks to everyone who has supported me and contributed to this book academically, but also personally. And finally, I wish you also all the best for your own research work. Thank you. Take care and bye for now.
1: Thank you so much. All right, bye bye. Bye bye.
0: Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check.